God, we just thank you for the way you love us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for um, not just spinning the world and then watching it, but for words like the story, for the Bible, for stories that move us, that change us, that give us insight into who you are and who you want us to be. Father, we've all come in here for different reasons today, with different things in our hearts. Um, many of us think we're hiding things, um, although right now, God, we do know that you see all and know all and accept us anyway. So God, we choose to be open, and for this next little bit, pray that you would speak into our lives, not in a cheesy way, not in a fake way, that you would say something more important than we can read or hear in the world, God, that you would, from the creator of the universe, speak into our hearts today and into our lives, and that we will walk away with here, from here closer to the way you want us to be. We thank you for the joy, the peace, and the hope that comes from knowing you. We pray for those in Boston right now. We pray for the two boys who did the bombing and their families. God, pray just like you have done in Old Testament times, as we've read over and over for the last few months, that you would salvage hope and joy out of misery. That the point of this whole story would be grace and hope and peace. And that you would use us to spread that. God, those in the room today who have heavy hearts, would you lighten them today? You promised us that those of us who are carrying heavy loads, we can drop them in your lap. So we do it now. Pray that you would remind us about what's important. And we'll keep living your story in your son's name. Amen. I love this opportunity um, to talk a little bit today. I've never preached a sermon like I'm going to preach today um, because if, if you read this week, you know that this is the very last chapter um, in the story. This is uh, chapter 21, and it's the very last chapter that covers the Old Testament. Okay, so what we've got is I'm, I'm going to cover a little bit of this last chapter, and then I'm going to take care today and talk to you about the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, there were somewhere around 400 years between the two testaments, okay? And during that time, we, we don't, in our Bible, have any kind of writings um, from God. We don't have anything that we consider to be um, from God that goes in the Bible. That said, there were a lot of writings. There were a lot of things going on and some things I think you need to know about as we kind of set up for the rest of the story. And as we go through this, you're going to hear today um, that there is a sense, and and I, I feel that in our community too, that there is a sense in the story over and over and over again that the people who are trying to live life with perspective and with God in their life first get this feeling that God is silent at times. Have you ever felt like that in your life? Um, especially those of you who uh, are Christians who have gone through some really awful things, which includes a lot of us in this room. You may feel like at one point or the other that God has just stopped talking, or God has stopped moving, that maybe even that God is not there or that he's chosen to turn his back on you. One of the things that, um, that I've heard my entire life about Jesus is that at the crucifixion, he says, my God, my God, why have you, anybody, forsaken me, right? Which is an English word 
for a, a phrase that Jesus was speaking in his language, and it's a, it's a translation. And what we seem to do with that is we, we see, we see that, that, that God must have turned his back on Jesus at that point. But truthfully, I, I don't believe that's the case. I really don't believe that's the case. And I've heard people preach it. I may have preached that at one point in my life. That at that point, God turned his back on Jesus because he couldn't be in the face of sin and Jesus was taking on the sins of the world. And truthfully, the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the word forsaken in that language um, really is a little different connotation. But the idea that what happened at that point in history, Jesus hanging on the cross, who is part God and part man, looks up to heaven and says, God, why are you being silent? Why does it seem like My life is out of control, and you don't care. Even the Creator, even Jesus himself, stretched out his arms and said, God, where are you? I I don't know if you feel this way um, in your life, but when I was growing up, you you weren't allowed to say that. When I was growing up, the churches I was in, I was in some great churches, but you weren't allowed to say things like, I feel like God isn't there anymore. You were, really weren't allowed to say things like, uh, you, you know, sometimes I feel like God doesn't care about me. I feel like God is being silent. You weren't allowed to say it. It almost felt blasphemous. And what we're trying to do is create an atmosphere here where you can say what you feel. And part of the reason we're trying to create that atmosphere is we, be, we believe that that's God's intent. All the way through Scripture, we see over and over and over people who are close to God, who are living, trying, doing the best they can to get perspective on their life and put God first, say, God, where are you? And if you're here today, and you're going through one of those times in your life, or you have a friend who's going through one of those times in your life, I want you to know today that the first thing God wants you to do is acknowledge it, not ignore it, not act like there's something wrong with you or that you need to get better at something, or, but to say, God, this is how I feel, to say it to somebody else in your life. I think your kids need to hear you say it. I think your family needs to hear you say it. I think the people around you, we need to be honest with each other when it comes to this feeling because this is a reality of the story. And if we're not careful, we begin to think that there's something wrong with us. But in reality, here's the thing. Don't confuse God's silence with his inactivity or his apathy. See, Jesus at the time hanging on the cross, said, my God, my God, where are you? I'm not sure forsaken is the right word there. I'm not sure it's not, but it doesn't quite feel right in the way I've studied it. I think it's something more like, my God, my God, it feels like you're not there. It feels like you're silent. Why would you be silent when the son that you love is destroyed on a cross? And the answer is this. We know the story, don't we? We know why God was silent. We know that God being silent at that time didn't mean that God didn't care. In fact, it was the opposite. And I want you to know this morning that when it feels like God is silent in your life, it could be the very thing, it could be the very time that God's plan is being engaged the most. This is what happened between the Testaments. The Bible becomes silent. God gets at times in the story, he becomes silent, but not inactive. It's an amazing thing. And at the end of the, the Old Testament, we see this. We see uh, that next slide there, Tanya. We see that there are some walls being built. A man named Nehemiah, incredible guy, and I keep saying this throughout the, the, uh, the story and as we go through this, but man, if, if, we had, if I had done this sermon series and read the story before we named our children, it might have been a little different. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Richard may not have let me name my kid Nebuchadnezzar. Um, 
Yeah, I think it'd be cute, Nebby. We could call him Nebby. Um, but I love the name Nehemiah. And I, I know you can't name a kid Nehemiah, but why? you can name a kid Cody. You can name a kid whatever you want to now. Why not, why not something that really is amazing with the story? This man, Nehemiah, was incredible. He was an incredible man. And if you read this week, you know why um, his, his faith was so strong in God. He did some unbelievable things. And he did these things that, that were, were the kind of tasks in life that could only be completed if God was in them, you know? I, I remember when I was growing up, um, I, I was really young. I was about fifth grade. And I remember I, I walked in on an elders meeting. My dad was an elder at that time at a, at a church. And I walked in on an elders meeting, which I wasn't supposed to do. Um, and nobody saw me. I kind of walked in and stopped. And all the elders were, were praying. And my first reaction was, i got to get out of here. I'm not supposed to be here. And my second reaction was, I may never get a chance to see what these guys actually do in here for five hours during an elders meeting. And I remember, I remember the walls. I remember the smell in the room. I remember everything. It was just one of those moments. And I remember I heard my dad say in a prayer, I heard him say, God, we don't want to do anything here that we could do by ourselves. We want to do something that's so big that we couldn't do it without your help. <laughs> and I, I, it made an impact on me at five years old, uh, fifth grade. I'll never forget my dad saying that. And now, since then, I've seen my dad involved in one thing after another that on, if it's going to get completed, only it can only be completed with the hand of God, with the help of God in it. It's the kind of thing we're trying to do in this church around here. I've seen too many churches and too many Christians who just go through life just like everybody else and have no intentions and no, no motivations to do anything bigger in their life. This guy says at this point in history, I want to do something. I want to do something so big. And this is the last, uh, the last real story that we find written in the Old Testament. It's about a man named Nehemiah. And at this point in history, as you remember... And if you haven't heard this, I'm going to recap quickly. Um, that basically the Israelites, they're God's people. They're chosen by God to represent God. And now it, it, this, it, it, in, in our stage of history right now, we often think of the Jews and the Israelites um, and the people who live in Israel as well as the Jews that live among us as, um, as a religious sect or as a, a different part of religion. But at this point in history, God had said to them, I am choosing you not because you're better, not because you're good, not because you're smart, not because you're pretty, but because I, want, I need to take a group of people, raise them up, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to inspire you, you're going to live the way I intended people to live from the very beginning. And when you live like that, when you put me first, he had these ten rules. God said, when you live like this, I'm not giving you a bunch of rules just to hurt your life and to cramp your style. I'm giving you these rules so that when you live by them, you will have a different kind of peace, a different kind of hope, a different kind of joy in your life. You will look different than the rest of the world. And when the rest of the world sees the way you live, they see the hope, the joy, the peace that's in you, they will want to know who this God is that you worship. That's why the Israelites were there. He said, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to raise you up. You're going to live differently. As you live differently, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you your own land. They called it the promised land. Even if you don't read the Bible, you've never heard it, this is a phrase you've probably heard, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. That was their way of saying it's incredibly rich with soil and with all kinds of great things to eat, and it will be ours. They they wandered around the desert. They kept making stupid decisions over and over and over again. And get this, these people went across the Red Sea by God's hands. The Red Sea split. They walked across. They got to see a miracle of God, and then it was a very short time that they were already doubting God. 
and they fell and they fell and they kept making terrible decisions. And they began to be a people who were chosen by God to live differently, but they looked like everybody else. <laughs> and I got to say, as I've been preaching these sermons, I've been thinking about us and the way we, lived our, we live our lives. And often the only way anybody could tell that we have anything different in our lives is by the Jesus fish on the back of our car, <laughs> you know? Which often I see as somebody's flipping somebody off <laughs> or as something really bad is happening. Somebody says something to somebody and I look and go, wow, that person's not very nice. And then I see there's a Jesus fish on the back of their car, you know? That's normally what I see. Or I see a terrible, terrible, scathing Facebook message against somebody, speaking against somebody they disagree with. And I think, what is that? <laughs> this is not who God's called us to be. And I realize we haven't come very much further than the Israelites did. We constantly let God down when it comes to living life differently. We live life differently, not so that the world goes, boy, aren't they good, but so the world goes, boy, isn't God good. And I see so many Christian people who live without the peace and the hope and the joy that come from knowing Jesus. If you're here today and you're one of those, I want to talk to you afterwards because I know that there is something in your life you're not tapping into yet. And we're trying around here to work towards being the kind of people that God calls us to be. And every now and then one surfaces, like this man Nehemiah. They're given the, the Jerusalem, which is, is, is the holy, it's their, their promised land. It's the place that God has given them. They, they live there for a while and they keep making mistakes and they keep living like the rest of the world. And God does some incredible things. You think the Bible's boring, you need to read some of these stories about the earth opening up and eating people. And about the way God says, uh-uh. When things get too bad and when, when things start to look like the rest of the world, God goes, no, this is not who you are. We're going to bring this back. And he does it over and over and over again. And the Bible is very clear about what happens at that point. And we get to see that this land gets taken away from the Israelites. They walk so far away from God. And it usually comes in the form of idolatry, worshiping somebody else other than God. And God says, nope, I'm taking the land away from you. So they get the land taken away and they get it destroyed. And basically at this point in history, the land has got walls all around it. In fact, um, you'll, I'll show you a picture here in a minute. There's some walls that, that go around most of the cities at this point. And they're somewhere around 20 feet high and 20 feet wide. And now you think about it, they don't have, you know, they didn't have Caterpillar at this point in history. <laughs> Um, there weren't uh, John Deere tractors, there weren't big scoop trucks, there weren't big dump trucks to build these walls. They did this by hand, and they formed the stones and the bricks and the mortar, and they did all this by hand. 20 feet high, 20, um, 20 feet deep that would surround an entire city. And to get the wall around Jerusalem, it would be about two and a half miles of stone that's 20 feet by 20 feet. You getting a picture of this thing? Done by hand. And when God says it's time, you guys, you guys are going to have to have you're going to have to step away from your promised land because you have walked too far away from me. You look like the rest of the world. And it's time to be disciplined. And it's time to, get to, to, to learn what it's like um, to be close to me and to, to get back to where you were. And so the walls are destroyed. And at this point, Nehemiah, who is an Israelite, who's trying to live close to God, here's what he says. He says, they said to me, those who survived the exile, that, that is those who survived God being, saying, you know what, I'm going to send an army in and destroy Jerusalem and push you out of your land, those of you who are Israelites. Those who survived the exile and are back to the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah got passionate 
about Jerusalem. It was symbolic to him. Check this out. Next slide. Um, so he gets these people together. There's, there's the remnant of a wall that's actually there today. This is the wall that, that we're talking about right now. This is a picture of the wall. They actually dug this. They had to dig down, obviously, the sediment. And the t- over time, the dirt raises up. They had to dig down um, the streets in Jerusalem to find this. But this is the remnants of the wall um, around the city of Jerusalem. would have been about two and a half miles, 20 by 20. Nehemiah decides that it is my life's mission, no matter what, He puts his head down and says, I'm going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And as I rebuild those walls, God's going to bless me. I'm going to ask people to engage in rebuilding those walls. And when those walls get rebuilt, the people of Israel will start to be the people of God again. We'll be protected and we'll have a place that will be our own. Look at this, Nehemiah 4, 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height. For the people worked with all of their heart. Nehemiah goes through this, and if you read this um, piece of scripture, you see this guy who's just an inspiring leader, and he's an amazing guy. I was reading this this week, and I was thinking about my job. I I own a a video company that's really, I enjoy it, I'm passionate about it, and I love it, but every now and then I come home at the end of the day, and I go, really? Is this what I'm giving my life to? Is this what I'm doing? I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that, where you come to the end of the day and, and, and you think about how much toil, how much work you've done, and you realize um, that you just kind of get perspective on your life. This week, I, uh, it was Friday, Risha said to me, Honey, would you go out and look at the air conditioning unit um, out, at the, out the side of the house? We have an outdoor air conditioning unit that, that handles our house. She said, It doesn't look right. It's like cockeyed. It's like, like well, that's weird. Maybe it's fallen off or something. So I went out there. <laughs> The ground had sunken in completely underneath our air, hand, our air conditioning unit, completely sunken in, and the air conditioning was hanging by the vapor connectors and the electricity, just hanging over this hole. But yeah, something's wrong here. So I got a flashlight. I called my uncle, and I said, something's going on here. Got a flashlight. It was dark. And I looked down, and he said, what do you see down there? And I said, toilet paper. I found out that a pipe was broke to the city line, and we had been for six months, uh, filling up our crawl space with Mitchell sewage. So that's the weekend I've had, and I spent yesterday in the crawl space, on my knees, and I don't need to tell you what, fixing this pipe, and at the end of the day, you lay down on your bed and you go, what did, what was that? What have I been doing? What, an entire day wasted just to get things back to civilization, you know, to civilized life. And who knows whether I put the pipe together, right? I'd probably two months from now, I'll be doing it again. Probably calling one of you to help me. <laughs> but the, the whole deal is that every now and then we just sit at the end of the day and we go, God, what are we doing? Have you been there? If you wake up the next morning after work and you, am I, what, is today Tuesday or Wednesday? Because it just feels like one day's running into the other. If you're feeling like that today, there's a remedy. You know that? There's a remedy for it. It happened to me when I got a call from, from the elders here and said, would you mind inter- doing an interim preaching thing for us here at New Life while we find a new minister? Well, long story short, I've been an interim now here for six years. <laughs> um, and we're still looking for another preacher, apparently. I don't know. But I, I got to tell you, I, I don't very often do I have... I don't really have that feeling very much anymore unless there's a sewer problem at my house. 
Because there's something that goes on about being a part of what God is doing on a regular basis. I'm going to ask you here, those of you who are feeling that way today, I want you to know you don't have to live like that. Nehemiah is a man who lives in an incredibly awful time in, in history. A terrible time in history. And he doesn't feel this way. And part of the reason is because he's engaging in something eternal. You know? The stuff that I'm doing for my company, there's nothing wrong with it. The stuff I did yesterday in the, in the crawl space, I had to do it. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But it's not eternal. It all goes away, doesn't it? When you engage in something that never, that, that never dies, when you engage in something that doesn't go away, that's going to be eternal, it changes who you are. If you think that's just preacher hyperbole, try it. When you say, I want to do something that will change people's lives for eternity. I want to do something that has eternal consequences involved. Even if it's three or four hours a week, even if it's showing here up here on Wednesdays and, and speaking truth and love into the kids that show up here on Wednesdays that have never heard the name Jesus and who have no idea what, what church is and what God is. Whatever it is in your life, I want to give you an opportunity today. I want to stop wherever you are in your story. If you're feeling that feeling of the mundane, if you're feeling this feeling of what am I doing, find something. Come find me afterwards. i got all kinds of opportunities for you. Ways to get plugged in to the eternal and not the temporal. This is what happens to Nehemiah. He's going to build a wall for the city of God. And he begins to inspire people. And they put their whole hearts into it. At this point, there are people around them, cities that are scared to death of Jerusalem because they've seen throughout history, they, they've read the papers. <laughs> they've seen what's happened when the people of God have been who God intended for them to be. It, it's immeasurable the way God blesses them. It's immeasurable the way God shows up and, and completely destroys enemies. It's incredible. You've got to read some of these stories. So the places around, while Nehemiah is doing this, all the cities around Nehemiah and the people that are building these walls up, they start getting real nervous. And they come in and they start trying to fight these people as they're building the walls of Jerusalem because they're scared to death that, that things are going to happen when the, this walls get built. And if you read this week, you know the picture here is that these builders are with one hand building the wall and with the other hand fighting people and fighting people off the wall. It made me think, about what happens when people build a new church around, you know? When people, when, when Christians and when, when church people build a new church up, you know what happens? I hear it a lot in Bloomington. Because we have something like 280 churches in the Bloomington area. Did you know that? 280. 280. <laughs> and I just heard of a, a couple big churches in town that are deciding to build a couple more. Because we, we need more like 300 apparently. And so people here, people here, people in the community who aren't Christians, who don't follow God, who don't know what's going on, they say, oh, uh, they're building more churches. <laughs> they're just building more churches. And you know what it means to them? Well, there's a corner on, in Bloomington that's going to be filled up again. And there's a, that means I need to get to O'Charlie's at 11 o'clock instead of 11.45 because all the church people get. The only impact church has on anybody in most of our areas is that they fill up the restaurants on Sunday after church. And I'm looking at this going, the communities around were so scared of what might happen. They, were, they realized that there was so much impact here that they actually went and tried to keep it from happening. It doesn't happen here because most of the churches around, they don't do anything. They stay to themselves. They don't do anything. We are committed to this place. We're trying hard to be a dangerous church, to be a church that does something, and it's happening. It's really happening in this place, and it's happening for Nehemiah. Check this out. Next slide. Here's what happens. It's a miracle. 
They, they build this, they get working on this, and I, I gave you those numbers, and I showed you that picture today because I want you to see there aren't a lot of people here, and it's a 20 feet, I keep telling these numbers because I want you to get this, 20 feet wide, 20 feet high, check this out. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elu in 50, 52 days, 52 days, two and a half miles, 20 by 20. There's still buildings in Bloomington and in Martinsville that have been going up, and we've got all the kind of equipment we need that have taken longer than 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, look at this, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. Now, what if Nehemiah would have said, 52 days, are you serious? No way we can do that. Just look at the numbers. Do the math. What if he had said this to people? We can't build these walls up. There's just no way. This is what we do all the time. This is what Christians do all the time. There's no way we can do a children's program here at New Life. We don't have enough help. The people have to work. We don't have... There's no way we can do a mall program on a Wednesday. There's just no way. There's no way we can do VBS this year. It's just not in the budget. There's just no way we can do a clothing ministry. By the way, all of those things we've done, all of them with the help of God and most of them somewhere close to the kind of miracle that was happening here. I, and I'm telling you, you need to, in your life, be engaged in something that is eternal because it will change who you are. Okay, so here's what happens. This whole time now, the, the walls are built back up in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is back to where it should have been. And now we've got 400 years or so of history where we don't have any writings in the Bible. Now, there's some apocryphal books. There's some, um, the books that were written, there's some things that were written about God, some really cool stories I'll have to tell you sometime. Um, I would love to be able to, to, to talk, tell you some of these this morning. Um, but basically, at this point, then Jesus, or God begins to, to, uh, to start the, basically, act two of the story, which is Jesus. And this is going to be an amazing thing. We're going to have our Christmas in May this year. Um, we're going to talk about Jesus and about his birth. And I've been thinking about it, thinking, man, couldn't I have done the timing a little better on this so that it was right around? I love it because there won't be signs that say Jesus is the reason for the season. There won't be little things. There won't be Christmas trees and lights to distract us. When we talk about, when we talk about the Christmas story, we're going to talk about it in detail. And we're going to hit some real things with it. And basically what you're seeing during this 400 years is God isn't silent. Just like God, he may not be talking, but he's thinking. God is moving. God is reacting. And just like when Jesus hung on the cross and, we, and Jesus felt like God is silent now, his plan was moving. And at this point in history, God is saying, I'm going to bring into the world a new way of doing a relationship with me. Check this out. One more slide there, Tanya. Sorry. Even in the beginning, I want you to remember this, in this story, as you're reading through this and as you're thinking through this, through the entire Old Testament, if you don't hear anything else I say, said through the Old Testament, go online and listen to it, they're all there. But one of the main points here is that, that God, from the very beginning of time, he has been looking to live where you are. From the very beginning of time, he has been looking to be in your life, to be in your life as a relationship, to, be, to live where you live, to be with you constantly all the time. It, that's what he's wanted from the beginning. Look at this, Hosea chapter 6. This is way back in the Old Testament. God says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God 
rather than burnt offerings. God says, what I really want, and by the way, God always gets what he wants. <laughs> God always gets what he wants. So when we see God say, I desire, what you need to know is by the end of the world, by the end of Revelation, God will have what he wants. <laughs> I love that. God says, I desire mercy. So when, when you read the Old Testament and you think, man, what a harsh God. And sometimes he has to be. But his desire is mercy. Reese and I, you guys know, have had a, the battle of father and son since he was born. Me letting him know that there are boundaries and him testing them at every stop. And I got to tell you, this little guy, I have disciplined him hard in his life. Um, we've tried to figure out what's, what, how to discipline and what works. You know, I've done the leverage thing where he gets something for Christmas, and I think, how much does he like that? Yes, he loves that. That means I can take it away if he does something really bad, and it will work, you know? That's how bad it's been. We've had, we've had battles in this thing, and I've got to let you know, in the midst of that, if you stepped in on my house... On a Saturday at 7 o'clock. You didn't know me. You'd never heard me talk about Reese. You didn't know who I was. You didn't know anything. It's Saturday at 7 o'clock after we spent all day together. If you stepped in our house, you would think that Reese and I are at odds. You would think that I am a harsh, mean jerk. And that Reese is a poor little kid whose daddy doesn't love him. If you just stepped in, and that's what we do with the Bible. We read a little story and we go, man, God is mean. And then we put it away and we forget that what God desires is mercy, and everything he does leads to that. I think about it on, on Sunday morning. Reese can't, you've seen him, he's hanging on me. I mean, this kid, we are, we are connected. There is nothing that can separate. God says, God says this, he says, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Did you know that? I never understood that until I met Reese. I can get mad, I can get frustrated, I can be silent. In fact, when I'm silent, Reese is scared. (laughs) But there is nothing that can separate me from the love and Reese from the love of his dad. And there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And this is the beginning. This 400 years is the beginning of God saying, wait till you see what's coming. You guys think I'm being silent. You guys think I'm being quiet. But here's what I'm hoping that happens, and I'm going to have to skip some of my sermon this morning. I'll put it in the next one. You're not going to miss it. Um, But I I want you to make sure and get this, that what's coming is is world-changing. In fact, to this day, we still, the world has never been the same since what God was about to do in this story. He's about to say, I'm going to take myself, and we call it, we say that Jesus is God's son, because we don't really know how else to say it, but the truth is that Jesus is God, and God is Jesus, and and so God actually takes a part of himself, stays in heaven, but also comes to earth in the form of a little baby, and I'm not going to give away Christmas in May, but I'm telling you, this story changed the world forever, and if it hasn't changed your world yet, please come that Sunday. Please be here, because this has the impact of changing everything you do. It has the, the, the opportunity. Next slide, Tanya. One more there. So here's what happens. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is right before um, 
right in the middle of all the Old Testament, right in the middle of God telling his story, Isaiah, who is a prophet of God, says this. Now, if, this is one of those things, if you just jump in on the Bible and you just read this by itself, you won't get it. But here's the thing. This is before Jesus. This is 700 years or so before Jesus was born, okay? This is before God had really said anything about Jesus himself specifically. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says. Look at this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. This is so big. We say it all the time and we sing Emmanuel, Emmanuel. And then we sing songs at Christmas that we don't understand that have the word Emmanuel in them. And they, be kind of, they, begin, they become noise in our lives. But if the Israelites heard God with us, you know what they meant? They, they would have thought, no way. Because in this point in history, you, could, you had to go to a place where God was. They built temples. They built tabernacles. It changed and things changed. But if you wanted to be where God was and you wanted God to be where you were, you had to go to a priest. You had to tell the priest you were sorry. You had to sacrifice an animal. There had to be blood involved. You had to sacrifice an animal. And you had to do all these things. And if you wanted God in your life, you had to go to him. You had to go where he was. God's saying, that's not the way this is going to be forever. Aren't you glad you live on this side of Jesus? God says, things are about to change drastically. You used to have to come to my temple. Now, you got to get this. Wake up for a second. Now, I'm making your life my temple. Your body will be my temple. Emmanuel doesn't mean, God, when things are hard in my life, I'm just going to go, God, will you help us, please? One of the things that drives me nuts with, with Christians is that we pray this prayer all the time. And I do it too, so it, it drive, I drive myself nuts. We pray this. God, please be with so-and-so while they're in the hospital today. I, sometimes I think God might look down at us and go, did you ever read Matthew? Remember when I said, I will be with you till the very end of the age? I'm with you. Just look. I'm there. Well, what we might mean is, God, would you show yourself? Would you be obvious in that hospital room? Would you be so obvious at this VBS this year that we can't miss you? But not God, will you be with us? He's already here. Can you imagine how frustrating it would be if you said to your wife, uh, or if your wife said to you, honey, would you be with me? Like, hey, where, do you not see me? I'm right here. This is God going, I am already with you. This is the promise. The Israelites were blown away by the thought that Emmanuel, God could be in me that I wouldn't have to go somewhere anymore. You know what that means? That means you don't have to come to church to be close to Jesus. Good thing, right, Susie? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you, Susie. It means you don't have to go to a priest. And I'm not pounding on our Catholic friends, but this is the promise of Jesus, that there is nothing between you and God anymore. When you accept this story, when you accept Jesus into your life, you have God in you. No more going somewhere. No more asking somebody to talk to God for you. No more sacrificing an animal. The one sacrifice is Jesus. So Isaiah prophesies it. And then Matthew, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. Next slide. So we know the story a little bit of Jesus. And, and I, I want to set up what's about to happen. 
Because what I'm hoping is that some of you are going to say, you know what, we've got plans, we're going to miss this Sunday, this Sunday, this Sunday, and you change your plans. Because I'm telling you, this, the, the, next, the next three months of this story is life-changing, potentially, if you let it be. And I want you to, to hear what's about to happen. I want to set it up today. That the second silence is now. We know what happened after that silence. 400 years, Jesus was born, and 30 years it was 30 years that Jesus grew up and, we, and the, the world was starting to hear about him and he was maybe going to be the king. That's what most people thought, that he was going to be the new king of Israel. Then when he became 30 years old, he started doing these miracles. And we say that he began his ministry. He started doing these things and people thought either this dude is a magician or he is God. And either way, I want to go see the show. And so they started following him. And then he dies at age 33. And everybody thinks, boy, what a good man he was. And they put him in a grave. And everybody thinks, man, it's too bad. He must have been a lunatic because he kept saying that he wasn't ever going to die. He kept saying he was God, but God wouldn't die. And so he must have just been a lunatic. You know, he just must have been a crazy person. And it's too bad because he did all these good things. And I wonder how he did all those magic tricks. But anyway, it was cool. Three days later, Oh, he comes out of the grave, the only one in history, except for Lazarus, who he did too, and a couple other people who Jesus raised. The only one who ever said he was God came out of the grave, and it meant that everything he said was true, and it changed everything. And since he went back to heaven, he came out, and over 500 people saw him after he came out of the grave, by the way eyewitnesses everywhere, and it changed their life totally. Then he went back up to heaven, and he said this. I'm about done here. He said this. He said, I have gone, have you ever heard this? I have gone to prepare a place for you. There are many rooms in my father's home. Here's what it meant. To us, it's like, oh, that's cool. It's a metaphor for their heaven is big and God's preparing a place and Jesus is going there and he's going to be welcoming. The Israelites, the people that were hearing this, the Jews would have heard it like this. In this day and age, when you got married to somebody, the, if you do now, the, the idea is, and I hear fathers of the bride say this all the time, I'm, I'm crying because I, you know, I'm going to lose my daughter, but I'm kind of happy because she's finally going to leave the house, you know. And that's kind of the way, we, the way things happen now, usually. You get, they get married, boy and girl get married, they go build their own place, they go move, they, get, they do their own thing. Well, at this point in history, when, when a man and woman got married, the father of the girl, usually, sometimes of the boy, but usually the father of the girl, would immediately, the moment he found out they were getting married, start building onto the house. Immediately start adding rooms. And it constantly, I know some of you are going, oh my goodness. This was history. This was life. You just kept building on. You just kept building on. And, it, and so eventually you have, and we see it in Israel. If you've ever, been, if you've ever seen pictures of, of Israel, I've actually been there, and I've seen the foundations of these houses. They just keep adding on. It looks like some of the trailers I've seen around here. You just keep adding on another section. You know what I'm saying? We just keep adding on and on, adding on. And it, it becomes this huge little mansion, and it's all family. And they have a common room, and that's how the church began in houses like that, full of families who do life together. Church was not a time that you sit in pews and listen to the preacher. It was a place you lived and you did life together and you shared your hurts and you shared your stuff and you shared your money and you put all this stuff and you need gutters. Okay, well, let's put gutters over here. You didn't have to go to the fund and ask the elders if you can have a little bit of money so you can put something over here. This was church. It was different. It didn't look like this. Since then, we've been trying to get back to that. And Jesus says this, He's looking at a bunch of people and probably a bunch of men who are right now building places onto their house. And he says, see how important this is to, historically? He looks at these guys and he says, you know how you're building your houses? 
and you're putting on rooms, man, this makes me want to cry this morning. I'm going to leave the earth right now, and I'm going to start building rooms onto heaven. I'm going to build rooms onto heaven. I have one with your name on it. I'm building a room with your name on it. I'm building a room with your name on it. I'm building it. And they go, but Jesus, you, don't, you, you know me. You know, I was a tax collector. I'm the worst of the worst. I got a room with your name on it. And I, I'm going to be with you until I come back. I'll be with you in heart until you see me again. So right now, we're in that waiting period. I want to put you in the story today, okay? Because right now, we're in the waiting period. Jesus said, he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to go and build rooms, and I'm going to put your name on a room. And when, I, when we get to heaven, you're going to have your own room, and I'm going to be preparing a place for you, and I'll be with you till the end of the age, but I'm coming back. And they all go, huh? I'll be, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. That was bad. The promise is, and man, stick around because Revelation, whoo, it's going to get hot up in here. Jesus says, I'm coming back, and it's going to be obvious. There's not going to be, hey, what happened last night? Did Jesus come back? It's not going to be that. The world is going to change completely. The heavens are going to open, and Jesus is coming back. And we're waiting now. We're in the second waiting period of the story. And here's the promise. You can flip on through that. Look at this. John chapter 14, verse 1. Here's what Jesus says. Don't let this throw you. Trust. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There's plenty of room for you in my Father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get a room ready, I'll come back and get you so that you can live where I live. Emmanuel. Part two. See, the first part of Emmanuel, isn't this awesome? The first part of God with us is he comes to us. The second part of Emmanuel is we go to him where there's no pain, there's no death, there's no destruction. Thomas said, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? Jesus said, and this is the end of my sermon today, okay? If you're, if you're, you're saying, I, John, I don't know about this. I don't know the right thing to do next. I don't know what's best for my family. I, don't, I feel lost out there. Here's what Jesus said. I am the road. I am the road. Get on it. Also the truth. Also the life. This is part of the reason we're called New Life Christian Church. No one gets to the Father apart from me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You've even seen him. Here's the promise for you today. Here's the promise that he has gone to prepare a room for you. And in that meantime, what he intends for you to be as a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a student, as a grandparent, as an elder, as a deacon, as a Sunday school teacher, as a worker in the community, as a guy who's probably going to have to get in his crawl space again when he has to fix this thing that he didn't fix this week. All these things, God says, follow my road. 
If you really want peace, if you really want joy, if you really want hope in your life, get on this road. There is a specific road in life, and that's what we're getting on together. You get this today? Get on this road. Stay on this road until I come back to get you. Because I have a place with your name on it. Band, you can come up. Man. I got too much to cover today. It's going to have to come next week. So today, I'm just going to give you an opportunity. Maybe you've, you've been following another road, you know? And I can make a promise to you today. If you're on a road that isn't the road Jesus was talking about, it doesn't lead to where you want to go. Where you want to go, where I want to go, is peace and hope and joy. You want to be able to go to bed at night without bills completely running your life. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to have bills, because you're still going to have bills. You're just going to get perspective on it. The peace, the hope, the joy that comes in your life. Problems are still there, but there's something undergirding. I can tell what road you're on. The older I get, you know, I, I used to say when I, when I first started preaching, I used to say, now, I don't know where you guys are in your life, so I didn't offend anybody. The older I get, the more I just don't care as much. I don't know how to say that. Because I do know where you are in your life. I was in a really big church when I used to say that, and truthfully, I didn't know a lot of the people. I know most of you. And I know by looking at your path, I know by checking out your life what road you're on. I can tell. And, and I just want to say today, as a friend, as somebody who loves you, get on the road to hope and joy and peace at all costs today. Don't wait. Don't pray about it. Don't think about it. I had somebody say it a couple weeks ago, John, I think I need to be praying about my decision with Jesus. Like, what are you praying about? What, what do you think he's going to say? Do it now, today. Get on the road today because there's a place with your name on it waiting. Would you stand with us today? Would you choose to do life together? Get on the road that Jesus talked about. I'll be right back there in the corner if you want to do that this morning. I'd be glad to help you. Let's sing together.